Hi guys, great to be with you. Today we are going to be starting a new series which we're really excited about and as we do that we're going to turn to Mark's Gospel today. We're going to turn to Mark's Gospel and to chapter 2, Mark chapter 2 and it's always important when we read the Bible to understand a bit of the context of what we're reading and like the letters that Paul wrote, like the Old Testament, the Gospels all have context and the situation that they were written in. So Mark's Gospel today, John Mark is uh, first mentioned in Acts 12 and in 1 Peter 5, Peter refers to Mark as his son and this is a really a uh, key indicator for us, he wasn't literally his son, but they enjoyed a close relationship. And it is, in fact, the basis for the gospel that Mark wrote, because uh, most scholars believe that Mark wrote his gospel based off the information that Peter shared about Jesus. And people believe that Mark followed Peter around. And as Peter preached the gospel, Mark wrote down these stories and formed them into the gospel. And a lot of Peter's preaching was to the suffering church in Rome. Uh, we can also look at a sermon that Peter preaches in Acts 10 and if you lay it on top of the Gospel of Mark there's an amazing correlation between the way that sermon that Peter preached, the narrative it takes and the narrative Mark takes in his Gospel. So that's a really quick background to this Gospel and we're going to dive into this story now and this story is very early on in Jesus's ministry. Um, if you look at Mark's Gospel you can split it into two sections possibly the first one you could call messiah hidden and the second messiah revealed so the beginning of jesus ministry is far away from jerusalem he is making his way there but he begins under the radar and then we read about how slowly the opposition against him begins to build so we're early on and he's been in galilee and now he's returned to capernaum and we begin to see the first signs of this opposition which i mentioned from the religious and the cultural elite it's starting to build up slowly so mark 2 uh, verse 1 to 12 i'll read it to us and when he returned to capernaum after some days it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door and he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men and when they could not get near him because of the crowd they removed the roof above him and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that may you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus has returned to Capernaum, as we said, which served as the base of his operations in the northern part of the country. And it says he was at home, so this may have been the home of Peter and Andrew, possibly. And very little can be kept secret in village life. Very little could be kept uh, hidden in that sort of community. Word would spread quickly about what was going on. And so word got out that he was back in town and quickly a crowd begins to gather. 
And in fact, we read that so many people gathered, the house uh, had filled up, it, people were squashed in everywhere, and now they were spilling out through the door so no one else could get in. A first century Palestinian home would have been a pretty simple construction. It was nearly always a, a one room structure with a flat roof. And then on top of the roof, they would have stored uh, various things, maybe dried food, maybe even slept at there when it was really hot in the summer. So there would often be a set of stairs or a ladder that would lead up to the roof of the building. And then the roof itself would have been made of maybe wooden beams uh, with thatch, loads of compacted earth and soil all packed down to try and uh, keep out the rain and the elements for the roof. So we can imagine that scene ourselves now. We can imagine Jesus inside teaching to this large crowd. Maybe everyone's standing so more people could get in. It's really crammed. The doorway's full. People are craning their necks from outside to listen and to hear what he was saying. Is he going to start performing miracles again? And then this crowded scene that we're imagining, four people arrive carrying a paralysed man. We don't know why they hadn't arrived sooner. Maybe they'd only just caught wind of Jesus's return to the town. So they came as soon as they could. But it was far too late to get anywhere near Jesus to ask him to heal their friend. So realising that it would be impossible to enter the house, they instead climb the stairs. They carry their friend, which, as we all know, isn't easy. The, the weight of a fully grown man up some steep steps and they begin to dig their way through the thatch and the mud and the earth this compacted roof, they begin to bash their way through it to make a hole. You know, for us, you sort of picture them lifting up a trapdoor or maybe just opening up the Velux window and saying, hey, Jesus, we're here. But no, this was them essentially destroying a part of the house. And this would have been a really messy, uh, just a really um, awful scene in terms of all the mud and the dirt would have been started to shower down and cascade down on the people below them it would have taken them a little bit of time this wasn't a quick pop in they go this would have taken some time and so it made a, a real scene and then they having made the hole they lower their friend down so he could be in the presence of Jesus and Jesus was so struck by their perseverance their tenacity their ingenuity Mark says he saw their faith he saw their faith and Jesus had this amazing ability to see things that normal human eyes can't see. He saw their faith. In the Gospel of Mark, we read many instances where Jesus heals people in response to their faith. Mark 5, 34, 9, 23, 10, 52. Yet this story takes a slightly different turn. And it would have been quite a shocking turn to the people there. Because the passage says before he's even addressed the sickness, Jesus saw their faith and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And this really lights the touch paper for the religious authorities who are there and they accuse him in their hearts of blasphemy. For them to lay claim to God's sole prerogative to forgive sins was blasphemous. As in Jewish teaching, even the Messiah couldn't do such a thing. And they say in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? And this may be an allusion to the Shema, which is a classic Jewish statement of monotheism in Deuteronomy 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They were accusing Jesus of usurping God's unique position. It's important to remember that this was in their hearts at this point. The opposition was very early on, as we said, so they hadn't quite moved into opposing him verbally, outwardly. They were thinking it in their hearts. And we now get a sort of slightly um, ironic moment here where they are accusing Jesus of not being God in their hearts. And he then perceives what they're thinking and addresses it. 
in a way that only God could. And he challenges them. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, of course, neither are easier for a human because both are impossible. But likewise, neither are easier for God because both for him are entirely possible. So any one of us as humans could say, your sins are forgiven. They're just words. But not any of us could go and heal a paralytic. And so Jesus is using an old rabbinic lesser to greater argument, where if someone could do the harder, which in this case would be physically healing someone, it would prove the easier saying the words, your sins are forgiven. And so the healing verifies the claim to forgiveness. As actual healing resulted from his words to the man, so actual forgiveness resulted from his words to the man as well. Now, unsurprisingly, the crowd are amazed, blown away. This man who could not walk, they all would have known him. He'd been lowered through the roof. He got to his feet. He got to his feet. He'd been healed. Mark says the crowd begin to praise God as a result. At this point, uh, Jesus' ministry is still garnering widespread support with the masses. They haven't turned on him yet. I've seen this firsthand myself, where miracles stir up a hunger for God. In 2007, I was in the Philippines on a mission trip and we were ministering in very poor slums, communities that lived on rubbish dumps, and we saw an outpouring of miracles. Babies healed, blind people receiving their sight. And in one village, me and another lady prayed for a paralysed man called Vincent in his bed, bedridden after a stroke, paralysed, and he got up and walked in front of us. He was fully healed. And the next day we heard the tiny church in that little community was full of people asking to know more about the miracle God that had healed Vincent. So after this dramatic event, you can imagine the people start to file out, the crowds begin to disperse, they ebb and flow away back to their homes, back to their places of work. And all the while they'll be talking, wondering, left in awe, thinking, how could he do this? Who is this man? Does what, does what he say mean? What does it mean to me? Is he God? All of these questions, it would have stirred up an amazing, um, all sorts of things in people's hearts. You imagine the people who own the house probably would have said about fixing the hole in their roof that had been created, hoping it wouldn't begin to rain at any point. They obviously would have been chuffed about the healing, but, you know, life would have carried on. Maybe if this was a movie, the end scene, we would now cut to those four friends, the heroes who brought their friend there. Maybe the wind would be blowing through their hair, gently rustling it, and the scene would close out with them there, maybe as the sun went down. The credits would roll, and that would be the end of the film. But having gone through all of that, and explain the context and having looked at the story in a little bit of detail, I don't actually want to focus on any of that. It's a little bit bizarre and I don't think I've ever written a talk like this where I have this point in the talk. But I don't want to focus on that. It's all great and there's so much for us to learn in that. I'm not dismissing it. But today I actually want to take us back in time before any of this had happened before the crowd had gathered, before they'd broken through the roof, before they had lowered him down, before Jesus proclaimed his sin to be forgiven, before he healed him, before the authorities began to hate him, before any of this, I want to take us back in time. And I want to take us back to the start of that day. The sun coming up early, people beginning to stir, the livestock waking up, the day beginning as usual, people getting up, going to work, kids playing, maybe off to school, 
But somewhere in Capernaum, there was a paralyzed man who couldn't do any of that normal stuff. He was probably laid on the floor, maybe some straw for a bed, and he may well have been laid there for many months, many years. He may have been born that way. And so his entire life, he had been laid down, unable to move and walk. The day begins anew, yet this man is still faced with the same unimaginable hurt and frustration at his condition, the thoughts of what could have been. You can imagine him looking through the doorway or through the window, seeing people pass him by and him thinking, if only I could be like them, if only I could be mobile. And what I want to take us back to is a conversation that must have taken place that day with four of his friends, a conversation that would change the entire course of his life. Because with the news that Jesus was in town beginning to spread, the man who performed miracles, the paralysed man and his four friends would have had a conversation. And maybe as they burst into his house to tell him, it might have gone something like this. Look, let us take you down to see him. The stories we've heard about this man are wild. But if what they say is true, he might be able to heal you. Come on, we've got to try. We'll carry you down. Look, the room will be full by now. People are flocking down. We've seen them. But that won't stop us. We'll do anything to get you in there. Even if it, I don't know, means breaking a hole in the roof. We will get you in and we will get you to Jesus. We believe he can do it. And there he was laid on the floor. All of the pain and the sorrow of his condition inside of him. All of that hope that had bled out of him. And now his friends wanted to take away what dignity he had left by carrying him through the streets for all to see, then hoisting him onto their shoulders as they climbed onto the roof, then smashing a hole through the roof, covering people in mud and soil and, and dirt. Then he would be lowered through in front of everyone, everyone staring at him, then put in front of Jesus, in front of the religious elite, in front of the cultural elite, so this strange man he didn't know might defy all sense of reality and heal him. And you can imagine everything inside of him in that moment was screaming, no way, this is ridiculous. I'm not putting myself through that horrific experience just to then suffer the shame and ignominy of him not even being able to do it. And then my friends have got to come down from the roof. They've got to pick me up. They've got to carry me out in front of everyone. They've got to carry me back through the village in front of everyone there. Back to this place that I've been all my life. Put me back down. No, thanks. I'm staying here. Is this a joke? I've suffered enough. Becoming the village idiot is the last thing that I need. No thanks. I'm staying here. This is who I am. And nothing can change that. And if that's what he decided, you really wouldn't blame him, would you? His experience of life had probably led him to a place where he'd suffered too many uh, disappointments, too many hurts to experience one more. No thanks, I'm staying here. But the thing is, we know that isn't what he said because we've read what happened. We know that his friends did pick him up. They did carry him to the house. They did climb onto the roof. They did smash a hole. They did lower him down. Jesus did heal him. Jesus forgave his sins and he walked out of that building. I still believe all of that fear and worry would have been swirling round in his head, all of those past experience, all of that 
uh, fear of man, what would others think of him, what a fool he would look like, how helpless and desperate he would look. All of that would have been going round in his head like a whirlwind. But despite all of that, he looks at his friends, better friends than you could possibly wish for. He looks at them and he says, OK, let's do this. And when he said that, he decided to give up control, to give up control. He placed his life and his fate, firstly, in the hands of those loving friends that wanted to help him, in the hands of his community. And then secondly, he placed his life into the hands of the infinitely greater loving hands of Jesus. Into the hands of his friends and into the hands of Jesus. This man gave up control and as a result was swept up by the power of God. His life took a dramatic turn down a new road. A new chapter began and he would never be the same again. Literally every step he would take from that day forward would be a testimony to the power and love of God in his life. And it all began with him simply saying yes. Yes to giving up control and letting God take over. And I think today there are people who are listening to this who need to give up control and say yes to God. To give up control of the pain and the hurt that you have held on to for many years. Things you have suffered that weren't your fault. Mistreatment, betrayal, lies. But the pain has become part of who you see yourself, part of who you are. And today you need to let go. To give up control of your career and your finances that you've worked so hard for. And you find it so hard to, to let go of them because you have, have, have earned it and worked for it. But today is a chance to say, God, I give you full control. To give up your desire maybe for a relationship, for a spouse. To give up control and say yes to letting the wonderful people of this church, of this community, actually come into your life and help you and support you. Becoming vulnerable to them, letting them in. To fully hand over the reins of your life to God, to give up control. One of my favourite verses in the Bible is Proverbs 14.4, which says this, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the power of the ox. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the power of the ox. And if you're anything like me, you spend so much time trying to make sure your manger is clean. Trying to order your life, trying to keep control, trying to keep control of your money, your relationships, your time. But abundant crops come by the power of the ox. And what that means is this, if we want to be kingdom people that have abundant harvest for God, then we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we need to let go of the things that are stopping him moving in us. We need to give up control. We need to, like that man, put aside a lifetime of hurt and regret, whatever it is that you struggle with, and say yes to God breaking in. And that might involve you looking foolish in front of others. It might involve you actually making a decision that you don't want to make, but you know God is calling you to. It may involve you saying yes to letting a community of this church come alongside you, 
opening up to them about your struggles and letting them love you and support you. We need to give up the right to a clean and perfect manger and say yes to the power of the Holy Spirit coming in all of his abundance. So if any of that resonates with you, you might be feeling your heart beat a little faster. You might just be sensing the Holy Spirit on you now. So if that's you, I just encourage you in this moment to adopt a posture of response. You might want to close your eyes or put your hands out in front of you. And we say, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. And now, whatever it is that we sense you talking to us about, we release control of that back to you. Lord, take our pain and make it into something beautiful. Take our regrets and sow them into a new future. Lord, would you come and heal us in the same way you healed that man? Would you heal us from our pain, from our regret? Lord, would you take our sins from us and we give them to you? Just increase in this moment. We thank you that you love us and we thank you that whenever we say yes and let go and let you take the reins of our life, it is only going to lead to amazing things, to an abundance, to a harvest. So we say, would you come, Lord, and do that? Amen.